0: This is the Meiji at 150 podcast, I'm Tristan Grunow. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Erickson, Associate Professor of History at Dartmouth College. Dr. Erickson is the author most recently of Orthodox Finance and the Dictates of Practical Expediency, Influences on Matsukata Masayoshi and the Financial Reform of 1881 to 1885, published in Volume 71 of Monument de Nipponica in 2016. Dr. Erickson, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, my pleasure. You've written in the past about railways and the relationship between private industry and the state. And and more recently, you, I understand you've been working on the Matsukata deflation. Mm-hmm. And so when talking about the modernization and industrialization of Japan in the Meiji period, we so often focus on the built forms, the railways, the mm-hmm. lighthouses, the telegraphs. Mm-hmm. But maybe you forget that this must have cost money. So could yeah. you talk about the fiscal yeah. condition of the state and how they were able to balance all of this building and the budgets at the same time?
1: Yeah. So the main sources of revenue, you know, tax revenue was the fixed land tax, Um, you know, that accounted for something like four-fifths of government revenue. And then you had a number of indirect taxes, right, consumer taxes, and the most important of those was the sake brewery tax, which uh, was equal to all of the other indirect taxes combined. You know, so as far as uh, the, the revenue stream, those were the main Sources, you know, there's a little bit from tariffs from customs, but of course those are fixed at a very low level under the unequal commercial treaties imposed by the Western powers. You know, sort of fixed at more or less five percent of the value of imports and, and exports as well. But the main way the government made up for deficits or shortfalls was to print money. You know, they basically printed fiat or you know inconvertible money. So. In the case of government notes, government paper money, it was from 1872. And then in the case of the national banks, these private banks that were chartered by the, the government, it was from 1876. They were issuing irredeemable notes. Uh, and so it was uh, they were not backed by gold or silver, which was actually flowing out of the country because of chronic uh, trade deficits. In fact, almost every year of the 1870s, Japan ran a trade deficit other than the deflationary year of 1876 was the one year where there you know there wasn't sort of a positive trade balance but then it went right right back to negative balance i guess so you have the government and these banks printing money to pay for projects to in the case of the government to to make up budget deficits and the government also printed so-called supplemental notes, uh, which were meant to be just temporary, but whenever there was a shortfall in revenue, you know, they would issue these. But basically, the government kept them on the books. And it wasn't until Matsukata became finance minister that the finance ministry actually moved to retire those supplemental notes. So those are the main ways that the government uh, paid for all these nation-building projects, You know they they face some real difficulties there, but the critical period comes when the the government settles the uh, the uh, cost of suppressing the Satsuma Rebellion, so the the last and greatest uh, samurai rebellion, and that happens in 1878, the year after the the rebellion was actually uh, quashed. You know, so the government and national banks issue a huge amount of additional inconvertible notes, and that eventually sets off by 1879, just runaway inflation, currency depreciation, and in 1880, 1881, under, basically under, for the most part, under uh, Matsukata's predecessor, uh, Sano Tsunetami, who's a finance minister, briefly, 1880 to 1881, uh, the government embarks on austerity, embarks on retrenchment, and increasing taxes. All the things that we associate with the Matsukata reform, actually, pretty much all of it began under Sano. And then Matsukata intends to continue these policies. And the one thing that he does follow up on is establishing a convertible currency, you know, stabilizing the currency. And so from 1882 to mid-1883, he actually contracts this bloated money supply at a kind of frenetic pace. He retires all of those supplemental notes that had been issued to cover budget deficits and then he begins to retire uh, regular government notes, you know, fiat notes. And as a result of this drastic currency contraction, there's a pretty serious uh, deflation and depression in Japan. And beginning in 1883, this is I argue in my new book, the book manuscript Matsugata begins to turn towards more positive policies, expansionary policies, and he proposes plans to promote exports, to borrow not only domestically but overseas. He tries to sell government bonds in England and Germany. Those collapse because of a failure to negotiate an exchange rate between the silver that Japan was going to pay on the principal and interest of the bonds and the gold that, say, England and Germany. Uh, you know, the standards that they were on, uh, they couldn't agree on a, an exchange rate because of silver was just depreciating rapidly well, in the middle to late 1880s and on. And so uh, Matsukata begins to move away from a kind of deflationary policy quite early. And this is very different from the widely accepted view of the Matsukata reform where the e- emphasis usually, I think in most textbooks, they'll say he slashed spending and he hiked taxes and thereby restored value of currency and stabilized the finances and so on. That's not the case. He actually increased spending during the Matskata reform. At the beginning of the reform, instead of asking ministries to cut their budgets, he asked them to freeze them for three years and then they could they could increase them beginning in 1885, he said. But in fact, because uh, the yen would appreciate during that time as he carried out his currency reform, it actually meant a real increase in spending—the freezing of budgets. But beyond that, though, Matsugata was forced to basically uh, approve additions to budgets because of various unexpected happenings, including a cholera epidemic and. And in the case of the depression that hit Japan as a result of his currency contraction and there were various peasant rebellions as a result of that, you know, there was spending to to deal with that problem. And then you also have the the military demanding expanded budgets. And the other side of the, you know, what's usually maintained uh, is that, you know, Matsukata increased taxes. Well, he did, you know, he doubled the sake tax. But that was not for currency reform or, or financial reform, but rather for armaments buildup you know, to meet the demands, especially of the Navy. And this was in, uh, in the aftermath of uh, major anti-Japanese uprisings in Korea in the, in the first half of the 1880s. And in fact, even though he doubled the socket tax, instituted uh, a number of other indirect taxes, uh, as a result of the depression that he largely caused by his currency contraction, taxes actually dropped and stagnated for the rest of the, the Matsukata reform. In, in the case of the sake tax, you know, farmers who brewed some commercial sake, but especially larger brewers of, of sake, were very hard hit by this increase in, uh, in both the tax and in licensing fees. And what you have is a, is a drop in demand during the depression for sake, and the production of sake actually does not recover until after the turn of the century. You know, it doesn't recover the, the level in the early 1880s, uh, and you have a spike in tax evasion of sake brewers, and also the increase in home brewing, you know, sort of moonshine, right? It increases as well, which is not taxed until later. What I'm presenting is is a somewhat different view from kind of widely held one. You know that the Mazzanta reform that it represented a successful example of an orthodox financial stabilization program, and I'm arguing that other than the currency reform, which was quite orthodox in terms of mid nineteenth century you know European economic liberalism. You know you you want to have a hard currency that's backed by specie you know, stabilize your currency, that Matsukata certainly carried out. And he, you know, eventually in 1886, you know, put Japan on a de facto silver standard where both the old inconvertible government notes and new notes issued by the Bank of Japan, beginning, there was a preliminary issue in 1885, but from 1886, you have these new convertible Bank of Japan notes you know, they're all redeemable in silver after 1886. And the government, uh, over time, retires all of the the inconvertible uh, government notes, the fiat notes, and replaces them with Bank of Japan notes. But other than that, uh, Matsukata's policies were actually quite unorthodox. (laughs) His policies actually resemble uh, sort of heterodox critiques of uh, of IMF style, uh, you know orthodoxy in recent decades. You know we have this Washington consensus for uh, former Soviet bloc nations and other uh, transitioning and developing nations, right? Uh, as a as a condition for loans, they have to carry out uh, um, uh, you know increase in taxes, and they have to privatize uh, state industries, and uh, they have to uh, uh you know retrench on spending and so forth you know all the things that we think Matsukata carried out in fact most of his policies deviated from or differed from from those approaches uh he actually called for a greater role for the state which which is not what you know either liberal or neoliberal uh economic orthodoxy would would want he uh you know he increased spending he he Moved to borrow in order to, uh, to carry out his financial reform. Uh, and uh, he also relied on, on local intellectual traditions, you know, rather than just this borrowed ideas from, from the West or from the kind of orthodoxy that prevailed either in the 19th century or the more recent one, too, if we compare it to what, what's happened in recent decades.
0: As you mentioned, one of these narratives of Matsukata deflation that we see in the textbooks is this painful retrenchment, but one that's necessary. And But as you mentioned there, it does cause a depression in the countryside. It leads to peasant revolts. Yeah. I'm curious, especially on how this impacts not only the economy, but the relationship between the government and the business sector. Mm-hmm. I mean, another ne- of these received narratives of the Meiji period, it's all about this collaboration between state and business in order to promote industry, the, the Shoksan Kogyo policy, It's this close working and close relationship between the two that allows Japan to industrialize. And you get these model factories that the state sets up, like the railways, the Tomioka Silk Mill, all these other model industries that government can then sell off as a way to spur the growth of private capital. Is that what's happening? Is there a change to this during the 1870s? Or or maybe do we need to complicate that whole narrative as well?
1: Yeah. So the 1870s, certainly there is this partnership between the government and and private enterprise. You know, the government is subsidizing various industries, uh, shipping in particular, right? It it provides subsidies to Mitsubishi. And the state itself is heavily involved, as you say, in model uh, factories. You know, the the usual view is that, you know, they weren't particularly successful, right? These state enterprises they may have been important for introducing technology and certain ideas about industry, but they really, for the most part, didn't become profitable or successful until they passed into private hands, is the is the normal view. And I, for the most part, I think that's true. You know, many of the textile firms that the government set up were just not appropriate for Japan. And there's an interesting difference between cotton spinning and silk reeling, I think. You know, so... The Tomioka silk reeling mill was actually too large, too big and uh, sophisticated for private entrepreneurs to copy, um, you know, mainly because, uh, you know, they would they would tend to to establish mills on a smaller scale and have more kind of hybrid technology using wood and uh, so forth for the, uh, you know, reeling uh, equipment and so on. Uh, and so the Tomioka mill, you know, just did not serve as a, as a really good model. And then in the case of cotton spinning, it was almost the opposite, you know, that the government mills were too small <laughs> to capture economies of scale. And there, you know, you can really make a strong case that private initiative was much more important than the state in, uh, in, uh, in cotton spinning, which, of course, became the main uh, you know, the leading sector of industrialization as we move into the late 1880s, 1890s with those company booms. And in the case of, you know, like the Sakai, I think the Sakai cotton spinning mill, there were a couple of mills that the government set up. Um, again, they were they were too small and the, the, the model for pretty much all successful cotton spinning companies in the, the Meiji period was the Osaka Spinning Company you know, founded by uh, shibusawa Eiji, who's the as uh, Peter Deuce very nicely put it the Johnny Appleseed of Meiji business of Meiji capitalism you know who helped found like 500 joint stock companies but that Osaka spinning mill was much larger and it, it did much more efficient and could capture those economies of scale and that became kind of the prototype or the model for for the you know really successful companies like kanagafuji and uh, and, and so on. Um, but, you know, the usual view is that once we get to the Matsukata reform, you know, we have a privatization, right, the sell-off of these uh, government enterprises. They, uh, almost all of them pass into private hands other than railroads. You know, the government hangs on to those. And then, of course, arsenals, uh, you know, telegraphs. There's some other sectors that the government uh, retains, but it sells off pretty much all the factories and uh, non-military factories and, and mines to the private sector. So we have a shift towards a more laissez-faire economy is, uh, is kind of an argument you often hear. I think Chalmers Johnson in his book on Miti and uh, the Japanese Miracle, you know, he argues that Japan moved more or less in a laissez-faire direction under Matsukata. And that I'm questioning, you know, I'm, I'm saying that the, the government remained pretty actively involved in the economy. It, it did not move in a sort of a non-interventionist direction. And, you know, the government continued to provide subsidies. Maybe it was more indirect involvement, uh, but indirect involvement was critical, you know, it, particularly at the time of, say, the 1890 uh, financial crisis, Japan's first modern financial crisis, the government Played a huge role in preventing uh, private railroads from uh, from folding. You know, they provided a couple million yen in, in subsidies and had the Bank of Japan uh, extend loans on the security of railroad stocks, which was a huge boon to to the railroad companies and, and, and railway stockholders. Uh, and the, the Bank of Japan also lent money to uh, holders of stock in the uh, the Nihon Yusen Kaisha, the the shipping company that spun off of Mitsubishi, uh, it also lent money to the Kanegafuchi Spinning Cotton Spinning Company, to various uh, banks and so on, other banks, uh, which it was not supposed to do. You know, Bank of Japan was supposed to be a purely commercial bank, but there's another case where Matsukata diverged from orthodoxy. You know that instead of choosing the the british model the bank of england as the model for his bank he chose the bank of belgium you know, national bank of belgium where the state was much more heavily involved in supervising the bank and he moved in an even more status direction uh by looking to german the reichsbank uh for uh, uh, in terms of the kind of note issue the, a much more flexible kind of note issue along along German lines, uh, and then with this industrial financing, which went against the uh, the, the bank's own rules, <laughs> just went ahead and, and were lending money to uh, to at least the holders of stock in various private companies. But I also argue that even the direct involvement of the government is still pretty significant through the Meiji period. You know, it's not like the the government totally withdrew from direct involvement in the economy. And you have these arsenals, right? both naval and army munitions works. You also have railroad workshops. uh, And these continue to be major centers for the diffusion of of, uh, technology and even personnel to private uh, railway makers and munitions makers, you know, that that some of the government... uh, uh, workers would move into the private sector, and they would also share their technology. Uh, and when we get into the 1890s, there's a kind of re-entry of the government into the uh, industrial sector, where you have the uh, Yawata Steelworks, right? The first uh, integrated steelworks in Japan is a government enterprise, and it's it uh, you know, finally begins operation in 1901. And the government in the 1890s steps up the construction of of state railways and eventually in 1906, 1907, you know, buys out the the major private railroads. Um, So there's a pretty significant state involvement uh, in the economy. You know, on the question of of the privatization uh, under Matsukata, you know, it's true that most of these factories and mines that the government had established and run that they were, uh, they were handed over to the private sector under Matsukata, but most of them were not sold until very late in his financial reform. It's really not until 1884, 85, that most of these are handed over after his currency contraction had pretty much run its course, You know, the currency deflation. Um, so that's another way in which he kind of departs from a, at least a, a more current IMF orthodoxy where you know privatization has to happen quickly and right away as you move into financial stabilization. And what I found is you know, the, the, the common view understanding is that the vast majority of these enterprises were losing money you know, so that it was not just a desire to promote private enterprise, but it was also a desire to cut losses the, the sale of these enterprises but in fact the of 10 enterprises that the uh, the, the ministry of public works you know the, the industry ministry sold um only two were actually running in the red when they were sold it, it, most of them were actually making some money you know um and the other thing is when we get into the uh, the matsukata reform the government continues to pour money into railroads and mines. Uh, And so that government spending on industry actually increased in the first three years of the Matsukata reform compared to the previous four years. So from 1877 to 1880, uh, industrial spending actually dropped during those years, you know, so that in a sense, the real retrenchment in industrial spending took place before the, the Matsukata reform. Although after eighteen eighty four, you do see a, a pretty significant drop in in spending as as the government moves more or less in a, in a direction of indirect support of of private enterprise, though still having a hand, as I say, in in major sectors, and the. You know, initially the government tries to unload its its factories. So, some, many of them were running in the red. Those uh, those uh, run by the Home Ministry, and some of the textile mills, and so on. But only I think two enterprises were sold in the early 1880s, and it really wasn't until the mid 1880s that that uh, you begin to have you know more accelerated sale and because there were just so few takers for these factories uh, you know initially the government set very strict conditions for the sale they, they wanted to get a good price for their enterprises it was not a fire sale you know bargain basement sale from the beginning but beginning it in uh, 1884 they basically relaxed the uh, requirements so the buyers of these government enterprises didn't have to pay the the full you know investment that the government had made and it was much easier uh, payment schedule and the government was looking not so much to recoup its investment as it was to find buyers who could who could run the enterprises so they were often leased to to uh, uh, private businessmen and then after they had shown that they could run them then they would they would finalize the sale and then the, the, the final phase of this divestiture program was the sale of the most profitable mines. So the government even sold its, its hugely profitable coal and, and metal mines. Uh, that began in 1888 with the sale of the Mike coal mines to Mitsui. And there's a kind of fishy story there that Mitsui outbid Mitsubishi by 2,000 yen I think, you know, and the total price for Miike was equal to the price of all the other enterprises sold by the government. And that Miike coal mines became the sort of dorubako, the the dollar box of Mitsui. It it basically financed its expansion into all sorts of sectors. And Mitsubishi sort of licking its wounds after losing out for the big prize, uh, it uh, in 1896 which is kind of the culmination of that whole government enterprise sale program, it bought the very rich uh, Sado and uh, what was it um, Sado and Ikuno, the gold and silver mines from the government so even those were sold off uh, to uh, to the private sector. now those enterprises, especially the, the gold and silver mines, they had been handed over to the imperial household. this was part of an effort to, To uh, consolidate the the financial independence of the imperial household before the opening of the Diet, when the parliament could mess with things, you know, to avoid that, and so that they would have a secure source of funding in the imperial household. But ultimately, it was decided, you know, just have to invest so much money in updating the mines, and and you have to compete for labor with private mines. Let's just get rid of them. So they. Eventually sold those to to Mitsubishi, um, but the other thing that Matsukata did during his reform was uh, he had the he uh, convinced the government to pass a a, a peers hereditary um, what's it called hereditary uh, uh, something law <laughs> um, a state law I guess it is and so he basically gave big chunks of stock in in state-subsidized companies, private companies, to the peers, you know, to the newly established aristocracy, including himself. Right? He basically enriched himself as well. And so they got stocks in the NYK and the you know, Japan Railway Company and various uh, banks, Yokohama Species Bank and so forth. And he also had a huge blocks of stock uh, in the Bank of Japan, the Yokoma Specie Bank, the the, uh, the NYK shipping company uh, handed over to the imperial household, too. So in a sense, you know, the imperial household became kind of almost like an investment arm of the state, you know, and it went on to buy stocks in a sugar manufacturing company and uh, various other, other private industries. And so you have the imperial household and the peers, you know, the, the new nobility as kind of proxy investors for the state, you might say, you know. So here's another kind of indirect uh, sort of involvement of the, of the government in, in the private sector.
0: You mentioned Shibosawa Ichi as, as kind of Japan's Johnny Appleseed. I mean, we could also think of Iwasaki Yatoro with the Mitsubishi firm or uh, the Mitsui firm and these big companies that were active even prior to 1868. And these are often seen a, as one structural reason for Japan's rapid industrialization following 1868, along with you know, what you've been describing as People like Matsukato with very sophisticated economic thought, vibrant commercial economy, all of these things that are said to be setting up Japan very, very well structurally for rapid growth. Even as Bob Bellis said, the Protestant ethic within Japan that, that positioned Japan so well to modernize rapidly—is this still a valid narrative? Are we? Can we complicate this narrative a bit now, or how has this idea changed? No,
1: I think that. Overall, it's still valid. You know, they're important carryovers from the Tokugawa period. Uh, so certainly domain monopolies, you know, in Satsuma and other other domains provide a, a sort of precursor to state enterprises, you might say, in the Meiji period. Uh, so John Sagers uh, at Linfield College, you know, he wrote about the Confucian origins of Meiji capitalism. and. Uh, and focusing especially on those satsuma leaders like Matsukata, who very much drew on their experience of sort of mercantilism and, uh, and, and these sort of domain monopolies from the Tokugawa period. And you, know, you have a number of sort of preconditions, right, that really uh, lay the groundwork for industrialization after 1868. So you have, you know, just to name a few of them, you have the rise of a money economy, Uh, You have a kind of a proto-national market emerging, in large part because of the alternate attendance system, right, where the daimyo had to spend every other year in Edo, and to pay for these grand processions and their whole set of residences in Edo, uh, they had to market their sort of local products in Osaka and Edo, and so you begin to have a a kind of standardization of prices and so forth, you know, as a result of, of that. You have uh, pretty sophisticated uh, financial systems emerging uh, in part to support this alternate attendance uh, system. And in the countryside, you know, Thomas Smith, for example, uh, you know, talked about the dynamism of, of rural industry, of rural manufacturing in the Tokugawa, late Tokugawa period, right? So sericulture, so you know, raising silkworms and paper uh, making and weaving and so on. And that these kind of cottage industries, you know, were kind of a breeding ground for the sorts of skills that could be readily applied, for the most part, readily applied to modern industry, particularly textiles, right, is the kind of leading sector in the Meiji period. So there's a number of ways in which uh, one could argue that the Tokugawa uh, really paved the way for modern economic growth. Um, and this is an argument that Sidney Crocourt, you know that Australian uh, historian of Japan. He he wrote several articles on the on um, the preconditions from the Tokugawa period. So very much emphasized that viewpoint. But I think we underestimate the obstacles that had to be overcome. And so Henry Rosofsky actually has this wonderful article in a book he edited way back in 1966. It's called Industrialization in Two Systems. And the article he wrote was about the Japan's transition to modern economic growth. And he emphasized the obstacles, you know, the various things that had to be uh, hurtled, you know, to, to for modern economic growth to begin. And he mentioned, for instance, uh, you know, certainly the semi-autonomous domains, which meant that you have, although you may have a proto-national market emerging, there's still all these divisions within Japan. Um, not a unified, uh, you know, transportation network necessarily, although we're moving in that direction in the Tokugawa. Um, and also you have just the agrarian orientation of the ruling class, which saw agriculture as the foundation of the nation. Um, you know, that thinking, it didn't go away overnight. You know, it took a while for for government leaders to recognize you know, the importance of, of industry, right? And that Iwakura mission from 1871 to 1873 was kind of a real eye-opener for some of the more conservative government leaders who were just amazed at what they saw in the West. You know, I think one member of the mission said, uh, you know, nothing grows from the ground. They're just black smoke rises from everywhere. You know, it sounds like an environmental nightmare, but, you know, for him, this is really impressive. You know, the industry was kind of the way to, the way to go. Um, You know, on the other point you kind of raised, which is how rapid industrialization was in Japan, I think we also overemphasized the rapidity of that industrialization, Um, you know, that it it really took Japan several decades to achieve industrialization on a broad front, you know, that, I mean, you have the beginnings of modern industry in the uh, Uh, in the Meiji period, but, you know, at the time of, say, the Matsukata uh, reform, the first half of the 1880s, of the total labor force in Japan, only 2% were in modern industries, and traditional industries like sake brewing, you know, hand weaving, uh, those accounted for over a quarter of the labor force, Uh, and agriculture, forestry, they accounted for the the rest of the 70-plus percent you know of the working population, and uh, and the point emphasized by, for instance, Nakamura Takafusa, the, the leading economic historian of, of Japan, uh, you know, is that the, the traditional industries continue to be just vibrant well into the twentieth century, until even the nineteen twenties, and it's really not until World War One that um, uh, that manufacturing industries accounted for more than half of industrial output you know that the majority of, of uh, industrial output in the major period was coming from the traditional sector you know and uh, and I think we, we sometimes forget that uh, you know the, the second actually the biggest manufacturing industry in for much of the major period was sake brewing you know that was like nationwide, right? And it was you know the biggest source of, of revenue, tax revenue for the government after the land tax. Um, so those kinds of traditional industries uh, remain very important. And it's probably not until maybe even World War One that we could talk about the industrial revolution uh, Japan going into industrial overdrive. Although some would counter by saying that, you know, the Meiji period was absolutely crucial. When you have the establishment of a legal, financial, communication infrastructure, Uh, you have major breakthroughs in industries such as textiles, and as well as steel and chemicals. That all comes in the Meiji period. Um, You know, so it was important foundations. But... I would still argue that you really see just the beginnings of industrialization in Meiji and it's probably not until World War 1 that you can really speak of a you know industrialization a kind of self-sustaining industrialization that doesn't rely on the output of agriculture to sustain it which was kind of the Meiji model you know agriculture as the pillar of industrialization it's not until Uh, the 1920s, agriculture sort of hits a plateau, but modern industry takes off, you know, as, as we get into World War I and interwar periods.
0: The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Grunow at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.